0: Hi, I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today is George Wertner. He's the former Ecological Projects Director for the Foundation for Deep Ecology. Currently, he's the Executive Director of Public Lands Media. He's an ecologist and wildlands activist. He has published 38 books on environmental issues and natural history, including such environmentally focused books as Welfare Ranching, Wildfire, Thrillcraft, Energy, and most recently, Protecting the Wild. So first off, as always, thank you for your work in defense of the wild. And 2nd Thank you for being in the program.
1: Yeah, thank you. Can you hear me okay? I've got the phone about a foot away. Uh, does it come across okay?
0: Yeah, I hear you great.
1: Okay, sure. Um,
0: so I just said a bad thing because I said you're working in defense of the wild, and uh, evidently wild and wilderness are bad things these days. Um, and it used to be that attacks on wilderness came primarily – from the right. And these days, there are a lot of attacks on wilderness coming from the left. So can we talk about that?
1: Yes. And 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 that's exactly the perception that I'm seeing more and more. And that the left, um, and, and I'm a little hesitant about how to actually categorize this group, because it's not everybody who's politically liberal or, or progressive that is doing this, Uh, but a lot of it has to do with the social justice movement and certain aspects of the social justice movement that sees wilderness and parks as part of the colonial imperialistic mindset, because, of course, the origin of parks and wilderness as a concept uh, was promoted by Uh, basically European and American uh, settlers uh, who saw the wildlife and the ecosystems being destroyed or degraded and wanted to protect and preserve parts of nature so that there would not be a a total loss of, of natural places. And that was the motivation for setting aside places like national parks, and they have come under attack uh, because some see that as an attack on both uh, indigenous people, depending upon where you are, uh, and also a um, compartmentalizing, so to speak. Uh, nature is here, and you know humans are, and their development are there. And, and and they would suggest that that's a uh, a, a terrible way to try to uh, live because they would uh, and I, I hope I'm I'm categorizing this stuff accurately but i I've read a lot of these papers and I would suggest that they see that having a dichotomy between what we call uh, natural areas and um, and in human impacted spaces as being somewhat uh, uh, disingenuous and, and uh, also some would argue even leads to more destruction and damage to nature because it sort of implies, okay, we have these spots set aside over here for nature and we have these spots over here where it's okay to, uh, they would say, we're saying, implying that it's okay to degrade those areas. And I think that that, um, I think, pretty fairly uh, describes the basic uh, position of those who think that parks and wilderness are passe and uh, should be eliminated and uh, should be um, uh, replaced by a, a different uh, position in terms of where they're sort of just uh, everything is available for human use is the way I would interpret it. But, uh, you know, I I don't want to put words in other people's mouth, but that's the way I think the end result would be. So, you know,
0: I I don't want to speak for you, but I have been fighting this notion for more than 30 years. And um, actually, let's back up before we go there. Let's go back to the good old fashioned. Can you summarize the good old fashioned right wing anti wilderness uh, argument that we used to hear all the time?
1: That is, yes, that that that's good. Good to do that. Good point. Uh, the argument was is that uh, particularly um, you you might say it was the sort of Christian doctrine, but I, I I've seen this in all kinds of. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're talking about countries that are dominated by Buddhists or Muslims or or whatever, so I don't. I don't think it actually is uh, tied directly to any particular religion. But but uh, you will see, and I've heard and talked to people who say God created the earth for humans to utilize, and and it's there for our taking, so to speak. And uh, that the idea that we shouldn't use these lands for human benefit, as they determine it. Um, is sort of contra is almost the work of the devil. In the more extreme cases, I've heard that, uh, and and certainly uh, at the very least, as it, it 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 contributes to human misery and uh, human um, poverty because we're taking some lands and setting them aside. In the more extreme cases, like in wilderness and parks, which uh, basically uh, disallow. Uh, resource exploitation, for the most part. Um, and we're setting those aside and saying, you know, you supposed to touch them. And, you know, the other part of the argument, by the way, too, is that uh, and it's tied into the uh, Native American uh, support movement that you see in the United States in particular, probably to a degree also in Africa and other places where I've read some articles about it, which is humans have modified the whole planet so there is no such thing as a wild uh, landscape or or, or uh, a place free of human influence. Um, of course, uh, that's true in a way. I mean, we have climate change. That's a global effect. We have uh, you know pesticides that have spread all over the world and water and animals. Uh, so that you know, in a gross way, that argument is correct. On the other hand. Uh, my counter to that is that not all areas have been equally impacted by humans, and it's there are significant parts of the of the globe where the human influence is relatively insignificant. And so those lands, as defined by a lot of conservationists, uh, are lands that are primarily what we would say self-willed. In other words. The natural processes, the evolutionary and ecological processes dominate in those places. So even where there is climate change occurring, I'll, I'll use an example. For example, in uh, the boreal forest in far northern Canada, uh, it's being affected by climate, but it also still is largely affected by natural processes, flood, fire, insects, etc., with a minimum of human influence in those areas. And so the right-wingers, getting back to your question, have always said that the uh, because there was no part of the world that was untouched by humans uh, and God, or whatever source you want to say, uh, put these lands here for human consumption and development and exploitation, we have both a uh, not only a, a, a right to exploit these lands, and some of them will go and say... Uh, uh, an obligation to exploit them. And so it was c- of a comedian argument, of course, for timber companies, mining companies, oil and gas companies, the, the usual suspects, industrial fisheries, uh, et cetera, uh, to exploit the natural world and, and, and those lands. Now what's happened is that same argument is being used by uh, people on the left, uh, usually not for the same reasons, and that's one distinction. They're, they they believe they are saying that these lands uh, should be exploited. I'll, I'll use an extreme case in Africa, let's say, where uh, there's true poverty out there and you have national parks with lots of wildlife in it. And people will say, well, the local people there should be allowed to kill the wildlife in the national parks because, one, they always did kill wildlife in that area and that they uh, by uh, putting parks in place, that increases the poverty of those uh, particular individuals uh, because they have less uh, food to eat. Now, I, I don't want to go all the way to the argument why I, I disagree with some of those positions right now, but uh, but I will point out that in general, the, the population of all people, including poor people in Africa, has increased tremendously. Uh, and so... The um, the pressure on anything like wildlife for, for food uh, or any other use of the land is much greater today. And, and it is my opinion that if we don't have set-asides like parks and wilderness, we basically will uh, annihilate a lot of the uh, biodiversity on the planet and disrupt functioning ecosystems as well. And, of course... I can make the human-centric ar- argument that that's against our particular benefit as human species, but but it also I want to point out, of course, it's just we 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 are aware that we can do this today. It's one thing, you know, a thousand years ago when you weren't aware of the impact you're having, but we're aware of the impact on natural systems. And and it, and to me, is it's sort of immoral. Uh, and this is a judgment, but immoral to Uh, actively cause the extinction or great degradation of landscapes uh, without providing any kind of um, backup, so to speak, by park with parks and wilderness.
0: So I, of course, uh, agree with that perspective. I, I just, I want to, I was going to go a different direction, but I want to slightly disagree with, with one thing you said, um, which, which is whether we have knowledge of what we're doing a thousand years ago. And the reason I say that is because um, I believe it was Robert the Bruce of, it was, it was some Scottish dude, um, royalty, uh, made it a capital offense to kill salmon out of season uh, multiple times. And um, also it was illegal to block uh, streams uh, where anadromous fish, Uh, lived and so I think in some cases you're absolutely right they didn't know what effects they were having but I think I I, I don't think I I think in there are it horrifies me that the let's say 600 years ago the Scottish royalty uh, had a better understanding of anadromous you know that they at least they at least were honest enough that to say that dams kill fish and any, anyway, I just wanted to say that I, I didn't want to give yeah. us that excuse that's all
1: okay well I I wasn't trying to provide excuses I, I but let's put it this way we certainly are much more aware of the magnitude of the losses today and the rapidity of which species are declining and or going extinct which compared to the background levels that we have been able to document over, you know uh, that occurred in the past has greatly accelerated. So, so at least today, I would say we have far less excuse to not understand that um, we are having a very significant impact on the planetary life forms, and that we should be, to the degree possible, at least acknowledge that and 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 compensate. For that and one of the ways we compensate besides having you know like making it illegal to take salmon in the wrong season or whatever you're talking about uh, from 600 years ago uh, to say that um we need to have some refuges and and reserves that uh where exploitation is uh limited and that the natural processes are given primary uh uh primary uh effects upon the land rather than having direct human impacts. Yeah, I completely
0: agree. And and when you say far less excuse, then that gets rid of my, that mollifies my slight <laughs> disagreement there. Um good. And, and, okay, I want to say one more thing before I ask my next question. The next thing I want to say yeah. is just it horrifies me that we even have to have this conversation about natural processes being primary. It, yep. it it just, I, I can't, I mean, especially given what you just said about, you know, what we understand. I mean, there are, there are stolid scientists who are saying that the oceans could be devoid of fish within the next, like by 2050, they've been saying. And, you know, I don't, it's, it's like when you have this level of understanding of, of, of what's going on out there, I, I don't understand why we even have to have the conversation. But having said that, I want to go back to when I first started fighting this battle back 30 years ago, one of the arguments that was being used by some environmental philosophers that, that made me really upset was that they were saying that um, because humans evolved, therefore humans are natural, which of course is true, but then they said therefore everything humans create is, quote, natural. So chainsaws are natural. Asphalt is natural, and there is no distinction between nature and culture. And that the the notion that chainsaws are natural, um, I mean, this is this gets back to the wilderness because the wilderness argument, and you don't have to talk about chainsaws if you don't want. But the point here is that it's the same argument really, because they're arguing when they're saying, you know. Cities are natural, too. and But it's like one of the best arguments. I mean, it's it's just everybody sitting around a kitchen table knows the difference between an, a wild forest and a parking lot. So, I mean, this is one. Sorry to go on too much of a digression. But this is one reason I despise most philosophers. Um, because it so just take this anywhere you want. It's just, I want to get at that. Well, that, that go ahead. Go ahead.
1: Uh, you know, I, in, in one hand, I would agree with that analysis. On the other hand, uh, even if you agree with it, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that humans aren't having a, a impact on a lot of other life on the planet. And, um, and so it, it it's true that, uh, you know, species go extinct now and again, but, uh, It'd be like saying, um, you know, some some people die, so it's okay to shoot them with a gun because they're going to die anyway. Uh, I, to me, and I think most people would say that that uh, argument doesn't hold water. That that uh, that we have a um, uh, some sort of obligation to consider the other life on the planet. And again, like I, I don't like to use this argument that much, but it's it's an easy one for some people to understand that. Uh, we are dependent upon the uh, the health of the planet and the health of the planet requires uh, that the biodiversity that's out there the uh, the uh, functioning ecosystems and so forth uh, clean water clean air those kinds of, of qualities are maintained or are uh, if if not causing humans to uh, go extinct, uh, which I think might not ever happen at least any short term, but it would certainly degrade the quality of life for most people on the planet. And that is an, you know in, in indirectly you're talking about quality of life when uh, the argument is, is, oh well, if we have a park or a reserve and we can, and people can't go in there and hunt the, the wildlife or drill for minerals or whatever or cut the trees down, uh, that affects the local quality of life, but we're talking about quality of life that would affect almost everybody on the planet. So, um, it it is a, a, a it's a, it's sort of a self destruction destructive type of argument, in my view, that um, ignores the, the well documented evidence we have that we have an a, an unusual and large impact on the rest of the life on the planet at this point, and. You know, this brings up a point that I would like to emphasize. One of the values of things like parks and wilderness uh, is that it it sort of teaches one restraint. And that's a very important lesson for everyone to learn. Uh, a mature person learns that you can't have everything you want or desire, that you have to uh, consider other people around you and and uh, and how your actions affect everybody. And so, in a sense, the the one of the philosophical since you were talking about philosophical things, one of the philosophical values I see of parks and wilderness is that it it is a an act of restraint to set aside areas like that. And frankly, there is a lot of evidence that shows that they work particularly well if they are funded properly and of sufficient size. Now they work well for protecting uh, functioning ecosystems and wildlife. And the critics, I'm again sort of answering some of the critics, some of the critics will say, well, we have these parks here and there and they don't seem to work and and species are still going extinct uh, in those areas. And that probably is true. And it's usually easy to understand why because often the the particular uh, parks are too small they're not uh, well funded, so that the, the 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 resource extractions, you know, logging may still happen in them, or or hunting uh, of species, etc. But in places where they are well managed and well protected, uh, they function very well for uh, protecting biodiversity and ecosystem function. And so uh, we have a lot of scientific data on that that shows that's the case. And that should be utilized to um, uh, advocate for even more parks and and wilderness reserves, and that's part of what some of the like E.O. Wilson and others were advocating when they said we should at least protect half of the planet ecosystems, uh, because at a ver- at some level, it, if you get too small and not enough, it, it doesn't work anymore. It doesn't function and. It's just like a lot of other things in life there's um if you if you don't have sufficient amount of of uh of whatever it might be a, a resource or whatever that you're uh, trying to use it, it it doesn't work anymore but if you have a large enough reserves that are well protected uh, they are uh, they they do work an example is uh i was just in the greater yellowstone ecosystem the greater yellowstone ecosystem has every species that was there that we know about. Uh, I don't know if we know about every bacteria, but that we know about uh, that existed um, at the time of uh, you know Columbus. I actually just thought of one exception. There was a grasshopper that's gone extinct. But for the most part, at least the larger animals um, that were there at the time of Columbus's first footsteps on North America still exist there. And part of the reason is, is the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem is large enough to provide sufficient habitat for most of those uh, larger species. Now, I think it, we could use more intensive protection and expand the boundaries of what is Yellowstone Park to encompass some of the other public lands around it. But the point being, if you got a large enough area, it tends to work.
0: So I think... Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it seems to me that everything we're talking about really comes down to value, and by which I mean what we value and what we think is most important. And you know, it it um, it, it reminds me of what John Livingston wrote about about how the wanting to protect wild nature is really, he, he argued a state of being and that we can make all sorts of arguments for it. But the truth is, do you actually value grizzly bears? And do you actually, um, want grizzly bears to continue to, uh, exist and to, um, you know, we can say perform their ecological functions, or we can say thrive, or we can say whatever word we want. But, but it's, it's, it, it's, I mean, do you, do you agree or do you disagree that, 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 that is, is actually, because it seems to me that both the right wing and the left wing arguments are fundamentally um, about what, what can humans take out of this and, and valuing, um, exploitation of the land more than than the land itself
1: well again all of this you're correct it is a value judgment and um and it and it also is a uh um, a a way to uh, the way you look at the planet and your role in it affects how you what you value and i think that there's a uh one of the things we're up against particularly with the social justice movement again trying to categorize it as you know there's a lot of good things that people are trying to do as social justice so it's hard to talk about it without sounding like i'm denigrating at all but what but there is elements in that movement that thinks that it thinks exactly the same way as the right wing which is um the what i call the anthropocene uh perspective which is things on this planet are for human use and and it doesn't matter whether you're, a, a, you know, a social justice person or the uh, the more traditional industrial, uh, you know, advocate. Um, you have really come back to the same basic assumption, which is nature is here for human uh, exploitation, and there's no regard for other life on the planet there's no regard for a long-term future and when you know when we were talking a little bit earlier about whether humans go extinct or not i some people say that i'm not so sure that would happen but but i can say that that we can live under pretty extremely degraded conditions and still live i mean look at what the air quality is in beijing for example these days um do you want to live your life that way? And that's, again, a value judgment. But that is uh, really uh, one of the consequences of having uh, full speed ahead, no sense of, of uh, restraint or uh, having feeling like there's any obligation of the present generation to ensure a quality of life for the future generations of humans, much less all the other animals on the planet.
0: So two things. One is, and one is we don't really need to go here, but I'm just mentioning it because I read it today, literally a half hour before we got on the phone, um, that for the first time in decades, China's population is going down. And the headline was uh, China faces demographic problem. Yeah. And it's it's like at some point, um, I mean, at, yeah, it's, I mean, The world was not here. The world was not created as a giant petri dish for humans. Um, But then the real thing I want to do is I want to read you. You know, you and I were having a discussion by email about an essay. I want to read a little bit of this essay and just pick apart. We can both pick apart a few. There's just some terrible logic here. And this is the logic that is used in these arguments all the time. Okay, this is from the article. There's one more problem with the Western notion of wilderness, one that affects us every single day. Wilderness creates the idea that some places belong to the natural world and others don't. I was like, well, first off, no, actually. It's like the fact that Yellowstone exists doesn't mean that New York City, that Manhattan Island shouldn't be wild. The truth is that Manhattan Island has been taken over by a city, but that the fact that, that Yellowstone has been set apart does not actually create New York City. When we compartmentalize nature, we end up fighting ourselves. We practice LNT—I don't know what that stands for—in national parks, but contribute to microplastic pollution at home. This is why I'm reading this: is because this really bothers me. Because the truth is, whatever you do in a national park, you're still contributing to microplastic pollution at home. Those are those are completely independent. We live simply when we're in the backcountry, but by trucks and TVs and giant houses, we're ensconced in suburbia. It's like those are independent variables that have nothing to do with each other. And in this way, wilderness doesn't connect us to nature. It disconnects us. I was like, this, this is making no sense to me. So I'm, I'm done. um, Now picking on this.
1: Let me respond to, you know, just some of the things you read. So uh, I suppose if you take that author's arguments at face value, uh, buying TVs connects you to nature uh, you know, I, I I don't see how the logic goes there of uh, of saying that protecting a landscape like the Yellowstone uh, National Park uh, necessarily disconnects anybody from nature. Uh, certainly, the description of buying big screen TVs or maybe living in, in cities and so forth may make it less likely for you to connect to nature, but that has nothing to do do with Yellowstone Park uh, being there as a as a refuge for wild nature and um, I, I just don't uh, and, I, and that's by the way I'm glad you read that because that's kind of the argument I hear a lot of times from people that is, they say well you know because we uh, if you set up thing uh, like Yellowstone Park somehow that separates you from nature well no it doesn't <laughs> it actually uh, creates a place where you can see where nature functions. Uh, and and give you the and pre, 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 reside, uh presents the idea of of what could uh a, a lot of the uh, landscape could look like especially if we did some restoration and 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 i would believe there actually is a lot of opportunity for doing restoration um, on a lot of parts of the planet where if we started to reduce our amount of of resource exploitation because a lot of what we exploit, we do so inefficiently. I don't want to sound like a you know an economist who says the problem is lack of efficiency, but there's there is something to that. Uh, you uh, a, a example would be uh, in the uh, in Montana and the northern plains uh, where they grow wheat, and a lot of the landscape is wheat fields, which has totally destroyed all the natural vegetation and most of the wildlife habitat uh, that the, but it's it's a place where because of the climate a successful crop of wheat is seldom produced uh, you know one out of every five years or something like that and, and farmers survive on AG subsidies and, and in a place like Kansas or Minnesota where they also grow wheat uh, it because there's not more moisture less drought etc more likely to have a successful crop um, you could eliminate a lot of the wheat fields in Montana, for example, and uh, not really affect the total amount of wheat produced, uh, and at the same time, uh, potentially restore some of that land so that it would be usable to nature again in 50 or 100 years. So this, that's the kind of thing that um, you know, partly bothers me about a lot of these arguments is that we are, uh, we assume that we have no choice but to do exploitation, and a lot of it, I would say, is inefficient and unnecessary exploitation and, and and would still be able to meet basic human needs. But, of course, the big elephant in the room is if our population keeps growing, that's more and more uh, of the landscape and of the planet that has to be exploited in order to just provide for basic uh, human survival so a, a couple
0: a couple things one of them is um, speaking of efficiency of, of, a fact that came across many years ago that has always blown me away is that leaving off eating fish at all just ignoring whether we do or don't eat fish um, the world's commercial fishing fleets are actually subsidized to a value greater than their catch and so a lot of the, I mean, you were talking about the the wheat farmers in Montana um, subsisting on ag subsidies, and this is true for so much timber, it's true for so much cattle grazing, so much of this stuff. Even if we were, instead of being environmentalists, if we were like, what are they called? What are the the free market capitalists? The ones that... Who are the sort of hardcore capitalists who who don't agree with subsidies at all? What are they called? Anyway, even if we were one of those, we would end up. I mean, most of the, a lot of the stuff that happens doesn't even make economic sense.
1: Right. Well, that's a that's the problem. And and the other thing I would say to that is that uh, it doesn't make economic sense. And and those are direct subsidies you're talking about. If you put in the actual environmental subsidies that allow these things to exist, they would be losing even more money, uh, you know, and a, a thing that, that we can use an example of is, uh, again, using the wheat fields in Montana. Uh, almost all the wheat fields in Montana are highly erodible soils because of wind and drought and the soil types they are. And a lot of that soil is being washed down the Missouri River to the Mississippi Delta. And we don't count that loss of topsoil uh, as a cost of weed production in Montana. If you were to do that, um, when you talk about things being dirt cheap, it's not so cheap anymore.
0: So I would like to spend the last, let's see, we've got like 14, 15 minutes left. I would like to spend, since we mentioned the word wilderness, and I think the wilderness is in your prescription going to be part of the solution here, There's something you and I have never talked explicitly about is given that human population will continue to increase, there's not going to be sane population policies, given that, given that there's not going to be sane economic policies. You and I agree on that, right? That There probably will not generally be, by which I mean sane economic policies. I mean there won't be sane ecological policies in terms of, I mean, by what I mean by there won't be saying economic policies is they will still continue to push for economic growth, for infinite right. economic growth on a finite planet, given that they're going to produce given they're going to push push for infinite population growth, given they're going to push for infinite economic growth. OK, one of the things that I say often is that all of my however many books I've written all can be condensed down to um, this way of living won't last forever. And when it's done, I would prefer there is more wild nature rather than less. That's, that's a summation of all of my work. Would you agree with that, that for is, your work?
1: Yes, yes, yes. And and, and exactly uh, that is what parks and wilderness force to a degree us to uh, do. In other words, that if it, it's sort of like, uh, you know, I don't know how you live your life, Derek, but uh, it, for example— um, most of the time I have worked, I didn't make a lot of money, but I had a policy of always leaving $20,000 in my bank account as a reserve because I couldn't predict you know, what might happen. I might break my leg and I can't work or write or whatever. And, uh, and so I, I always had that reserve there uh, for the rainy day, you might say. And uh, that kind of restraint um, is what parks and wilderness, in a sense, do for us not that that we would suddenly then say okay now that we need the timber from blah 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 uh, national park in africa it's okay to exploit it now but it it does um uh provide for uh you you learn to live on less is the point i was trying to make is that you you fit your lifestyle into what is a more uh, sustainable life uh that can still exist instead of uh, going right up to the limit. I see this all the time, and read about people who say, "Well, gosh, you know, now my food costs fifty dollars a month more than it did, and then now I'm I'm in real trouble." And I'm like, "Gosh, you know, you should be figuring out how to, if you possibly can, you should be figuring out how to live on uh, less money so that uh, that isn't a problem. Fifty dollars more a month for food." Well, yes, I I I agree. We
0: haven't gotten to my question yet, which I'll get to in a minute. But before we get there, I want to say that, that something I've said often, but not to you, is that my environmentalism in many ways, yes, I, I fully believe salmon should exist for their own sake, and I, you know, I believe that trees are I probably I, I believe that trees are sentient beings. I believe that everybody's life is valuable, I believe all that stuff. That's all great. But also it comes from a fundamental conservatism in that I think it's just really stupid. To wipe out salmon when you might be hungry tomorrow, I just think Mm -hmm. I think that's just monumentally stupid. And I've thought that from when I was probably in second grade, so when I was seven, I realized it's just really stupid to destroy stuff when you may need it tomorrow. I mean, even once again, I'm not in any way saying that the buffalo don't have the right to live for themselves. I'm of course saying that. I'm just saying it's really stupid to kill buffalo to wipe out buffalo today. When, when next year you might be hungry. It's just ridiculous.
1: Right, of course, yeah. It's, that's what, you know, we're saying is it's uh, counter even uh, self-interest in the long run and uh, that uh, human self-interest is not served well by this kind of a mindless exploitation and uh, any more than the rest of the species that are harmed by it.
0: Oh, and, and, and by the same token, and yes, at the same time, at the same time that it's really stupid to kill some, some species you might need to eat, doesn't matter, plant, animal, I don't care, whatever. Um, it's just like that's really stupid. It's also really stupid to put endocrine disrupt- disruptors all over the landscape when you can't get them back. It's just, it's really, conducting open air experiments is a really bad idea. That's, <laughs> that's where my environmentalism comes from. I just think it's a profoundly yeah. stupid idea. Okay, having said all this, my question finally. Is, is given that we won't have sane population or economic policies, we will continue to worship infinite growth, given that this way of life won't last forever, what, what policies, if, if they put you in charge of attempting to protect as much wild nature as possible what what, given what I said before, what can we do to try to help grizzly bears or bull trout or arctic grayling, who's a species that you and I talked about before um how is it what can we do to help them or salmon because I think salmon are in deep, deep, deep trouble um, what can we do to to help them through this bottleneck
1: well. You know, again, this shows you my bias in a sense, but I I do think that parks and wilderness work well at protecting a lot of biodiversity and ecosystem function. Therefore, I believe we should support, and hopefully people listening to this will do this, support the creation of more protected landscapes, whether it's national parks, whether it's wilderness areas, whether it's other sorts of uh, preserves where human exploitation is somewhat limited. The idea of preserving half of the planet, as Zio Wilson and others have uh, talked about for a long time, would be a step in the right direction. And, you know, it's not, it, 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 for the most part, we still have time to do that. In other words, uh, a good portion of the planet is still relatively, and I'm using that word, relatively uh, unimpacted by human Exploitation, and if we can set those places aside uh, as protected landscapes, uh, we can. Uh, we have a chance. It's it's part of the hope. You know, I, I was thinking about this the other day. Things like national parks, to me, are part of uh, can, can can give you some hope in a what what may seem like a very uh, frustrating and a dismal future outlook, especially if you're aware of all the things that are happening. Uh, and 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 in doing so, protecting landscapes as parks and wilderness to me is a, a positive response that can uh, at least give you the sense that you're trying to counter uh, what is uh, otherwise a, a, a future that's almost invariably going to be less attractive for. For humans as well as everything else on the planet, so uh, I I just think that that is a a really good way to at least get started in, in recognizing that um, uh, we we can uh, change our course and, and and again despite what everybody says about colonialism imperialism and all that kind of stuff these are proven ways of working that the fact that some white guys and you know, the East or, or wherever you want to put them, uh, came up with the idea of protecting landscapes as parks uh, and, and later wilderness. Uh, it doesn't make it a, a poor uh, or, or an idea that has no value. Uh, democracy was invented by a bunch of Greek guys sitting around in uh, thousands of years ago. Uh, and, and most of us would agree that democracy for all its faults is still a better way to run the world than, um, you know, authoritarianism. And and I would say the same thing about wilderness and parks. For, for whatever uh, criticism you can make about them, they still work uh, better than almost anything else we've come up with.
0: And can you talk for just a moment about... I live on the coast and there have been some big fights here about with commercial fishermen because they've overfished the oceans and there have been right. some big fights about uh, setting aside some reserves that they're water versions of parks where people can't fish and this is and my understanding is that even from a even from the perspective of people who make a living by, Killing fish, um, having a reserve, having a place where there is no fishing allowed allows the fish to reproduce. So, even from their perspective, in the short term, they may not get to fish there for a few years, but the fish are going to expand back out. And it, it's always seemed the same thing to me that at the very least, um, I mean, I know, I also know, I re- remember reading about the, the, the Shawnee many years ago and that I think you and I may have talked about this before, that Kentucky itself was not very highly populated um, because the people who lived around the area recognized it was a game reserve where you go hunt. but, um, But you... I mean, people have always understood that animals need habitat and plants need habitat too. And I don't understand how so many people today especially people on the left don't understand that that animals need habitat
1: well uh, you're exactly right I mean the the argument that humans influence the entire planet which is the sort of the leftist perspective as well as some on the right uh, and therefore uh, any preserve or something is unnatural uh is ignores the fact that um human use was never uniform across the landscape. So places like Kentucky uh, had, uh, there was no tribes, at least at the time of historical contact, uh, that uh, dominated that area. It was uh, uh, the dark and bloody ground, partly because of warfare a lot of the time. But it was, uh, as a result of that, their wildlife was abundant there. And, And that's not any different than, for example, uh, uh, the wolf packs have territories and a lot of the most, uh, some wildlife uh, is able to uh, survive in the places that are sort of the inner spaces between um, uh, the uh, territories of the different packs and, and maintain uh, their numbers. So that, uh, and, and it has to do with the fact that those territories uh, are defended. And they, but they're not used. It doesn't. The territories don't occupy the entire landscape, or certainly not used to the same degree as, say, the center center of a territory versus the outer edges. And so, uh, in a way, wildlife gets a break in those kind of things. And and it's the same thing with what you're talking about with uh, fishing reserves on the ocean, et cetera. Uh, Those uh, places of non-exploitation help to sustain areas of high exploitation and that's that's basic ecology we have sinks uh what we call mortality sinks where for whatever reason uh the uh, predation may be really significant in one area and 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 you never get um uh wildlife being able to survive in that area very long but other areas where they um are uh, the predators are less effective or less abundant uh the wildlife survives there. And can then, since at some point they reach a point of saturation, and then animals move into the, uh, to the sinks and continue to try to colonize it, uh, because it's still habitat that they can use for a while until they, of course, uh, get killed. So we just have a couple of
0: minutes left, and there's there's another issue I want to bring up that really bothers me about this notion that humans affect every place on the planet, therefore nowhere is natural. Which is that um, salmon affect every area that they in contact with too, and uh, ravens affect every area they're in contact. Everybody affects every place. I mean, um, salmon, you know, feed forests. the The question is not whether whether some creature affects another, because everybody knows that everybody is affecting everybody else all the time. I mean, that's, we're all interconnected, but the important question to ask is not, has everything been touched by humans? The important question to ask is what has happened because of that touch? And when salmon come into a stream, you know, I don't know, there may be some harmful effects of salmon in a stream. I have no idea, but, but in general, they they, they die and then they really help the forest a lot. And, um so my point is when they say humans affect everywhere and therefore no place natural that's not even the point the point is what have humans done to the place that's the question that needs to be asked do you, do you agree with that
1: yeah uh in a sense with this qualification is that as i said earlier uh the, the human impacts are not uniform and they never have been exactly and that, and, and that's the the point. in fact. Most of the places that, if you, uh, the Western United States is which I'm most familiar with, but uh, almost every place that's a major human settlement today is also the same places that had the most uh, indigenous people living in them in most cases. And that's because they're favorable landscapes. You know, San Francisco Bay would be a good example where there's abundance of food and, and the climate was relatively mild and stuff. So you had a lot of, a lot of uh, people living there for thousands of years. Uh, and, and at the same time, you could go out to a lot of parts of Nevada and find that uh, human population was pretty slim there and found only in the most favorable locations, like uh, along some of the uh, glacial uh, remnant lakes that were there and, and rivers, because water, of course, was essential. So you have, you, you have this uh, natural geographical distribution that people have always used so if you were living in san francisco bay maybe there was a higher human population there but that human population wasn't the same up in uh the sierra foothills or in the uh, higher peaks of the sierra nevada uh for example so to it would be just ridiculous to assume that the human influence was the same everywhere because it never was
0: and i'm not supposed to ask questions to which i don't already sort of have an idea how you're going to answer but um what was the, do, you, do you happen to know the numbers on what the human population rate was in the Great Plains prior to the arrival of horses? Wasn't it,
1: like, extremely small? Um, y- yes and no. Um, it depends upon when you're talking about, for example. Uh, uh, th- here's how I'll answer it. Uh, there were tribes that lived along the Missouri River and other rivers out on the plains the Platte and so forth who uh, had agriculture. But they only got agriculture, you know, growing corn and squash and things like that. That only was adopted pretty late uh, in recent history. I mean, there 10,000 years ago, nobody was growing crops on the Missouri River. Um, and uh, so if it was totally a hunting uh, population that dependent on hunting and gathering, The population was very low, and it varied. It did not stay the same. For example, there was the major drought on the Great Plains, oh, I can't remember, I think around uh, 1100 A.D. or somewhere in that neighborhood, um, where the bison herds even uh, were practically eliminated by the drought, and people who were dependent on bison had to move out of the plains. And or in some cases that's when they started to adopt uh, growing crops more frequently to cover their bases when they couldn't find bison. So, uh, but in any event, to sort of get to your main point, the, the population was never really high there. I've I've heard of one estimate that in the entire Great Plains from you know Canada to Mexico uh, there was pro- approximately three hundred fifty thousand. You know, Native Americans living there uh, on what we call the plains. Um, You know, nobody knows for sure. These are, at best, you know, crude estimates, but it's obviously it wasn't millions of people living there. It was a small population spread over a very large landscape.
0: Which we can sort of count as a wilderness, is what I'm saying. I'm going to ask one more question and then we're done, which is um, a line from this article that started this whole discussion between you and me is. Uh, somebody there's a, they're quoting somebody who says Western ecology wants to turn the landscape into a museum. And I disagree with that. I think that what we're attempting to do is to create, well, I'll just let you answer it. I disagree with that. Western, I don't think we want to turn the place into a museum. What do you think?
1: Uh, I, I don't think so either. We want a museum means everything's static. Uh, you know, you go into a museum and things aren't changing. What we want to do, or at least I want to do, and I think you want to do, is preserve the uh, ecological and evolutionary functions. Which means there will be change uh, over time, uh, and that so long as those uh, those uh, we allow those changes to occur, it 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 has been shown over the long haul that you tend to have a more stable situation but there's still going to be variation. There's like the example I gave about the Great Plains and bison decline for a while. uh, That occurred during a major drought. That's, that is not a museum. That's, that's something that's alive and uh, operating under the self-willed landscape definition that I think most conservationists uh, advocate for the, uh, for wilderness and parks is to try to have them still be functioning, not just a static, stay the same. And I think that idea of st- static is one of the problems we have in all these natural resource things, where people are saying, "Oh, we're having larger fires today," which, of course, I think is because of climate change. But as if that's that shouldn't happen. Uh, well, it should happen because we have droughts and we have warming temperatures. That's a completely, I would say, quote, natural. Uh, response to the climate change. And that kind of um, uh, natural process is important in the sense that it tends to um, select for those animals and plants that are best adapted to whatever the current conditions we have today are. And drought is a current condition we have around the West, and and we're seeing uh, plants and animals adapt to that. And of course, uh if, if we suddenly started having an ice age again, you'd have a whole different influence on the wildlife and the plants. And you would have, uh, hopefully, uh, the ability of plants and animals, if we have large enough preserves, to adapt to that change.
0: Well, thank you so much for all of this. And thank you, of course, for your great work in the world. And I would like to thank listeners for listening. My guest today has been George Worthen. This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network.